Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby, and my guest today is from Berlin. It's Maria Meyer, uh, and she's CTO of Phantasma Labs. Um, and Phantasma Labs is a, a self-driving car company uh, that that uh, maybe Maria better explains or can better explain than I do. <laughs> and they are, as far as I, I know, um, a bit of an different guest from my usual guests. So typically I have uh, the ones that, I don't know, went through series A, series B, uh, uh, partly public, um, and you're a bit earlier. Um, but I still find the, the topic really compelling and, and why you do that and so on. And Maria is here to explain us a bit more. Uh, Maria, did I, did I introduce you correctly? Do you want to add anything? Uh, I'm very happy with the introduction. First of all, thank you for inviting me. I feel very honored uh, to be part of this podcast uh, because usually you have big names here and uh, I guess I'm uh, a baby compared to the other companies, but still, I'm very happy to be here. You're soon to be big names. So <laughs> let's introduce it like that. And maybe um, we start with my like typical intro questions. So what is your like as a geek or nerd, what what is your journey? How how did you get into computing? Why do you do what you do? Um, like when did you start and why? So I grew up in Munich, so in the south of Germany. Um, and my dad was a mathematician at an insurance company. Um, and he was always very much interested into, you know, technology, a, a bit of programming as well. And then he had a PC back then in the 90s. And, and I usually used to get his old PC. So whenever he would buy a new one, I would get the old one and I would start and install some games. I guess that was like the first touch points in the 90s. And then when the first traces of the internet came and spread amongst the normal population, I would say, I have a very common name, Maya, uh, but he bought a domain in our name. And then he bought also a domain in my name. And so then I uh, started experimenting with HTML and I just made a very simple website in pure HTML. And because I was a young girl back then, I wrote about like a story about my pet rabbits, basically. <laughs> and then I had a little guest book and that I really felt kind of, I had a really cool feeling, you know, you could build something, you could share it with your friends. And I found this a very creative way of, you know, putting my energy like to use, I guess. And that was my first touch point. So I guess my my dad kind of nudged me and pushed me into that direction. Um, and then I had uh, computer science as an elective in school. However, that almost uh, made me forget about it again, because unfortunately, I didn't like the, the way they taught it. 
But then once it came, I think, to choosing a degree, I still gave it a shot again. But yeah, I think you can trace it back to those days when I, I wrote about my pets. <laughs> so. so you most likely, I don't know, you most likely know then the center tech and the marquee tech um, and the blink tech uh, if you started early in the 90s, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, very vaguely, because then in my professional life, I became more a backend engineer again, and I moved as far away from interfaces as I possibly could. <laughs> But yeah, back then, um, definitely something that I dealt with. Okay, cool. Um, and and your 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 next steps then, um, like, how did you actually get into like, or when did you discover that you want to enter like this world of self driving cars and? Um, like was there anything like special during your study times or like how did that evolve i think not at all so maybe if we go back slightly to my journey like when i uh, finished my high school in munich and i thought about what to study there's were so many options um and i thought back you know to the days where i did that website and i thought maybe computer science was the way to go but because i apart from you know using html i hadn't really programmed before i went with um It's called information systems or business informatics in Germany first um, in my bachelor's degree. So there you learn mostly about, you know, how to build systems, I guess, for companies, ERP system and such like. Um, but I realized I didn't like the business lectures at all. So I went for pure computer science in my master's degree. Um, but I didn't really ever think about self-driving cars in my studies, to be honest. Like this never came as an occurrence. I think I was very fortunate that um, I did the CDTM program in Munich, which is like a very entrepreneurial add-on program to your studies that you can do. And so I saw a lot of other people starting companies. And then if you know someone who has started a company, then it doesn't seem so far away anymore. Then it becomes a possibility, right? And so that was, I think, the the point where I thought after having worked in Berlin for some time as a backend engineer, you know, and feeling a bit restless, I thought, you know, I can just give this a shot at least. Um, and then when I met Rama, who's my co-founder, um, and he used to, he's also a technical co-founder, although now he has the CEO role in our company. Uh, and he showed me this amazing simulation that he had built in the past um, of a huge crowd of people doing a pilgrimage. I was so fascinated and I thought, okay, let's apply this tech to some area um, And I guess being based in Berlin and, you know, then doing like market research and meeting a lot of people for coffee or just ringing them up and seeing where our technology would be meaningful. We stumbled upon a lot of people who work in the automotive industry, right? Because in Germany, I think that's a big part of the driver of our economy. And we met someone for a beer, like we just wanted to meet this person for, you know, 20 minutes chat, ended up multiple hours And he actually told us, you know, that in self-driving, there's a big problem, like understanding how to deploy a car in cities is much more complicated than on a highway, especially because you have human beings involved. And that part mm -hmm. to model human beings in a realistic way is so incredibly difficult because we do all kinds of things, right? And we, you know, you change city, you change country, you go to the UK, people drive on the other side. Uh, stuff like this. There's so many different options. And then we thought, okay, this is somewhere uh, where we can apply this tech. And that was kind of the 
I think the, the how do you say that was the basis for for the company. Like after speaking to that particular person, um, I think that really opened our eyes, and that's how um, we started and gave it a shot. And then after getting then the first customer project that kind of underlined and said yes, there's a real need. Then of course that's how we went. And what do you do right now? Like um, as a, as a like a bit of a deeper introduction to the topic. Uh, right now, as you mean as a company or as a CTO specifically? Yes, yes, as a as a company, as a company. Great. So we uh, model human behavior um, in city contexts, and the application for this is um, the safe testing of any form of new autonomous mobility. So it can be a self driving car, it can be a delivery robot. Because self-driving cars, for example, are extremely hard to test in the real world when people are involved. So you might have seen in the press people use crash test dummies, things like that. But imagine you're a self-driving car engineer at some car company and you want to test your automated braking system if it's going to work or not. You cannot ask you know, your colleague or your neighbor, hey, can you cross in front of my car so I can test if the brake is going to work, right? Obviously, that is unethical. So then... The industry has started to use simulations very, very heavily. Like we talk about the new companies, the big names, but also the traditional ones. However, when we took a look at those simulators, we realized, um, well, they are great at, you know, showing the world from a specific perspective, the ego car and rendering all the sensors, like the pedestrians and the cyclists, they were really like extremely rule following, especially the pedestrians. They remained on the sidewalk the whole time. They cross only when the light is green. Nowhere in the world, I think not even in Switzerland, people follow the rules 100% of the time, right? So then we thought, okay, <laughs> we can become much better than this. So basically, in a nutshell, we are a plugin to enhance existing simulators to become like with human-like behavior, if you will. And we provide really realistic behavior. So we can, you know, have someone who is taking more risks or someone who might be a drunk person in traffic or, you know, different age groups, things like this. Um, and this is really our mission. Um, however, if we take a step back in general, I think as a company, we want to solve problems through simulations and reinforcement learning. So I think the first area where we landed at this one um, but stay tuned in the future. There might be additional areas where we are going to go. But I guess self-driving is also like a big topic, right? And especially that simulation topic already is a full-time job, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, it is, especially, you know, um, our product still requires a lot of R&D work. So typically in a machine learning a type problem that you're trying to solve, you have to test and validate your problem and write some metrics, right? How do you define a metric to quantify if a trajectory that your model produced is human-like or not? That's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, even skimming uh, research papers, there's no definite answer here. So you have to come at it from different viewpoints. Um, and that's why, you know, we still have R&D at the core of our company and we are continuously um, researching um, because it's a safety-critical application in the end of the day. So we need to do that. And that's also our, yeah, our mission to be safe here. Okay. So you're, I, I call you now the chaos monkeys of self-driving. <laughs> Is that appropriate? I think so. Yeah. I mean, you could uh, chaos test with us, I guess. I think that makes sense. <laughs> 
And um, how crowded is that field actually? I think our particular field is not extremely crowded. Um, there, there were a couple of other companies that wanted to go, you know, in the trajectory prediction space in the sense that, you know, they will tell you in the next five seconds, where is the pedestrian likely going to be? And they would deploy then in the car itself. But our space where we are still in the pre-development phase, you know, where you're actually using simulators to test is not incredibly crowded on the pedestrian side because it's quite hard, but also, you know, a lot of companies also work on the highway case and like they are slowly getting towards the urban space. So I think uh, we've been an early player here probably. Yeah. Want to also like from your perspective, uh, talk a bit about the, the state of, of uh, autonomous vehicles. Like how impressed are you when you see like a video of the full self-driving Tesla thing that they deploy in the US uh, as a beta test? Does that make sense or is there like way better tech already? And is it kind of, you think kind of, oh, that's that's not so impressive, Elon? <laughs> like, how do you see that? I mean, this week, I think someone leaked some videos where Tesla, uh, I think, killed a dummy of a child. <laughs> I'm not sure like how realistic Ooh. these videos are or not. Um, but you know, I'm not gonna, I mean, I'm sure they're doing amazing work and there's a bunch of engineers working there. I would say, um, in general, the state of the industry, my impression is, you know, most companies have focused on the highway case, which is easier to handle. Mm -hmm. There's less, mm -hmm. less mm -hmm. uncertainty. I, at that part, I think, you know, is valid and impressive. The urban case where we are kind of operating, I haven't been impressed yet. Like, um, I think, you know, they might work with one particular type of crash test dummy, which is usually, let's say, uh, a grown up, usually male person. But as soon as you have someone that deviates from that, like a child or an old person, someone who looks completely different, mm. I don't think we are there where we should be at right now. Yeah. So I would say highway, okay, but urban case, not so much. So it's not to expect that in two years we have self-driving taxis that earn money for their owners? Um, I mean, in San Francisco, where I think the companies have been driving for years and they, they know this particular space very well, maybe. But, um, you know, if we're talking about a car that you can just take and drop anywhere and just drive across the U.S. and do a road trip, I think that's a whole, totally different ballpark because then... Even the U.S. is a very diverse country, right? So then um, I would I usually answer, I think we're going to get there uh, in stages. So either by geofencing, you know, cars will be mm -hmm. ready for mm -hmm. specific areas or for specific locations. Or another thing mm -hmm. could be cars uh, self-driving on uh, the highway. And as soon as you enter the city, you have to take over as a driver, things like that. But um It's not going to be, you know, like a switch. And then from one day to the next, we have like full level five autonomy. Um, yeah. And, and, and who's leading the field? Is it, is it Waymo or Baidu or Tesla? Or is that like, is that like a one company you, you, you think is, is producing the most impressive work? Oh, that's, I think also from the outside, very hard to tell, to be honest. Um, yeah. I mean, what I like about Waymo, I think, is that they as a company have started using simulations very early on and they kind of pushed uh, the field there. And I think they have very early realized that, you know, 
you have to combine simulations with the data collection part because a lot of, I think a lot of companies, they focus on just collecting as much data as they can. But that's a very brute force approach if we talk in terms of, you know, technical terms. Um, from, mm -hmm. I think Cruise also seems to have done very good work, but um, it's hard from the outside to tell, you know, who's really leading the way. I mean, maybe we will have some like standardized um, testing very soon and then we can have a more objective thing because th that whole field, you know, there's so many press releases and um, so much hype going on. It's really incredibly difficult to understand and judge the state. But that what I can say, I think both Waymo and Cruise, I kind of sometimes um, read their, like the engineering blocks that they have and just that what I read there made a lot of sense to me. So um, from that perspective, I would say I liked what I saw. <laughs> and what about like enabling companies? Like, I mean, you're also an enabler or uh, mobile eye from Israel that has been acquired by Intel years ago already. Um, how impressive is it, is, is, is that what, what you see there? Like, especially with mobile eye, uh, because they also sell quite good from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think totally. Um, uh, they are also now, I think one or two years ago, they wanted to deploy in Munich as well. So in Germany. Um, so yeah, that is a totally valid approach as well. Um, but I think probably there will be, maybe at the end of the day, we will have a combination of approaches, right? Because right now I feel like we are still in this discussion. Uh, what type of sensors do we have? Do we do end-to-end -end machine learning uh, just with camera sensors? Do we add a 3D sensor? Do we do this and that? And, you know, we are still in these types of discussions, so we don't even know what tools we are going to put inside the car. So it's very, I'm curious to see where we are going to end up. Um, I once had Sebastian Troon here in the podcast and he said that like the camera is most likely enough. And um, I think that's also the Tesla approach. I, th I found it funny that like Tesla uh, decided that and immediately stopped putting radar in the cars, mm. right? <laughs> that, um, Absolutely. It's kind of bold, right? Um, what, what is your perspective on that? Is that enough or? I think, you know, I love technology, but I'm also usually more cautious person because working with machine learning day to day, It's not a one-size-fits-all bullet that can solve everything, right? So then, and because we are, in our specific case, dealing with other people in traffic, I think I have a totally different perspective here. Um, so, you know, I also want to push the technology forward um, and I want to do, I want there to be a success, but I would rather, you know, do some tests and see what is actually working before saying, okay, no, we're going to get rid of one entire feature because of X, Y, Z. Um, so I think I have a more maybe down to earth approach in comparison. So. I remember like um, driving an, a rental car in Israel, by the way, like 10 years ago, and there was like a small device on the window. And that was the the, the back then mobile eye hardware, which uh, warned me whenever I, I crossed this, uh, like the, 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 the road parts. Uh, that was kind of impressive back then already. Um, uh, you, you yourself, you would consider yourself as a deep tech company then, I guess? Or, I mean, deep tech is kind of a, like a trendy um, <laughs> trendy way to, to, to call companies like yours. Um, is there, or what, what would you say, like from your own perspective, 
what makes your tech very unique? Is it uh, the models you build? Um, what makes you deep tech? Um, are you like just applying standard software or just applying standard software, which is hard enough in the AI space, mm -hmm. obviously? Um, are you are you building your own? Obviously, you're building your own models. Uh, what, how does your 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 tech look like? What what makes you a deep tech company? <laughs> I mean, what is the definition of deep tech, right? So you have, I think, in the deep tech space, you can have um, companies that solve, like they do drug discovery or they want to go to space. Um, we don't have a hardware component, but I think what makes us deep tech is we are definitely, you know, not a software as a service company because we our development cycles are just incredibly long and the problem that we are solving is quite hard uh, because to have at the end of the day, what we would like to have is a generalized behavior model of human beings for different parts of the world, different types of um, locations. So, you know, a pedestrian, for example, in a roundabout will walk extremely different than in an intersection. Um, then you have a largely crowded city, you have like a less crowded city, And I think I said this before, like if you go to the UK, then people will behave differently. They have to look the other way and you cannot just, you know, kind of mirror uh, your simulation and flip everything around. That's That would be, unfortunately, that's not possible. Um, we have the ambition to cover different geographical areas. So my co-founder is from India, right? So uh, in India, you have many more people. You have different types of actors on the road. People use different, um, let's say, I don't know, tools, I guess, to move around as well. So it's an incredibly hard problem. Um, and to have, you know, sometimes our customers, uh, they want a, a generalized model that they can just drop wherever uh, in the world they might be, and that will just work, right? But in order to get there, it's almost, I mean, it's not as hard, but if you want to have a self-driving car that you can just drop wherever you want and it works, it's kind of a similar idea behind that, right? So until we get there, um, it's, it's quite some work. So I think in that sense, and because there are not, you know, so many, I also our understanding of what makes some like a trajectory human, like isn't really there yet. Like what I hinted on in the beginning regarding, you know, what is in the research area. Um, and then like, do we look at a trajectory just with kinematic metrics, like in terms of speed values, et cetera, or do we have a behavioral component there as well? All these things. And then you talk about the different types of people. Like we have an old lady, we have someone using a wheelchair. We have someone who is blind. We have someone returning from Oktoberfest who's incredibly drunk. There's incredible diversity. I mean, That's how we humans are. That's beautiful, right? But to put this in a technical product, I think uh, requires a lot of work. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think in that sense, um, we could be considered deep tech because we cannot just start and sell something right out of the gate. We have to start small and go in pieces. Okay. And um looking at 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 your model and and like how it would work like in a concrete um situation um so the model would run in the car and whenever the car sees a pedestrian um, it would ask the model how likely it is that what happens like what so, what would be like yeah. the um the input and the and the output sure um 
glad you asked. So actually we run inside a simulation. So we run before something goes into the car. So then you can imagine, Mm -hmm. I can give you an example, which I think I give to a lot of people, which usually clarifies things a bit. So let's say we have the automated braking case. So we're not talking about a fully autonomous car, but someone wants to test the automated braking system. So you have a simple Mm -hmm. map where a car is um, taking a right turn. And while after shortly after the right turn, there's a pedestrian crossing the road. So then the the engineer wants to understand, is my car going to break in time because, you know, the pedestrian is coming from behind another car. So it's hard to perceive that pedestrian. And so um, then we provide a pedestrian who crosses the road in multiple diverse different ways, uh, taking different types of trajectories, um, different speeds, different risk profiles. And so they would, you know, then set up the simulation to run, let's say, 2,000 times and then see, okay, how many times, that will sound funny, did I kill the pedestrian, did I hurt the pedestrian? They will have like a report, right? So it's almost Mm -hmm. like running, Mm -hmm. I guess, a gigantic set of unit tests, if you will, and then seeing, you know, what is Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. wrong. And then they will be adapting their own algorithm and test again and then see, okay, for these specific behavior types, am I now better prepared or not? And that's why a frequent requirement also from industry for us is, you know, to have a deterministic pedestrian. So they have to be repeatable. They have to understand for specific behaviors, is my brake working or not? Um, things like that. So I think this is a very common case how people might use us, but you can zoom out, you know, and then you have a bigger map and then we would have pedestrians spawning across the map. It's, it really looks like a game. So when people just walk by my desk, they might think, you know, I played a Sims or GTA or something like that. <laughs> like it really <laughs> does look like that. Um, and so you would have pedestrians spawning and appearing and going to different uh, goal points along the way and uh, producing different interactions with drivers or autonomous vehicles. Okay. Um so and and that simulation is kind of a, a standard that the industry uses, or I, I still don't don't get. I mean, it, it would be kind of close to the real world, mm-hmm. I guess. So then you also need the, like the real world input, like images or what and 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 uh, location um, and or, or what is the, like the input then? Like how does it? Yeah, work? that's another great question. I'm very glad you asked. So no, there is not yet that many standards out there. However, the industry is working on some. Um, there is, we can start with the maps and locations perhaps. So here we have, um, a, a, just a file format, which kind of looks like XML called open drive. So open drive, you can use to just describe a map and how the, how the lanes should be and where there are traffic signs and traffic lights. Then you have on top of that, something called open scenario. Um, and there you have, you can describe dynamic things that are happening on an open drive map. And so many, so I think the standard came from, was heavily influenced by German companies, but also beyond European ones, because I, again, you can see the different approach. I think uh, Germans like to work on standards and so on. And then before they move on, um, however, that's been spreading around now, right? So in the simulation, I saw that many more tools are able now to read open drive files. And um, that's a nice thing because if you have an open drive file, then you can, generate a 3D map from that. And then you cool. can work with that. So if we integrate with another simulator, 
they are using Open Drive, then we can immediately populate our own simulator on our end with that 3D map. Um, so that would be one thing. Then there's other standards popping up. Um, OSI, which used to be called the Open Sensor Interface, I believe they are changing it now to Open Simulation Interface, which describes how do we can we couple two different or even more uh, simulators together because in a simulation world, you know, it's not always common to have a one-size-fits-all simulator. Um, it might make sense to have spe specialized simulators that work together, like you have, like the name uh, indicated, you have a simulator that is great at rendering specific sensors. Then you have another simulator that may be the main simulator that's called the environment simulator. That kind of just displays the world in 3D. And so you have to integrate the two together. And then you might have our simulator that provides the human um, component. And so wouldn't it be nice to have a, a standard way of exchanging information also in the simulation world, right? So it's kind of like an API, but if you couple two simulations together, you exchange information sometimes, you know, every four milliseconds. So you can, it's going back and forth, back and forth. Um, so it's, it's quite a lot that is happening there on the technical side. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some of these standards develop because, of course, for a small company like ours, would be amazing to not have to, you know, adapt to different simulators that are out there, but to rather just provide a, and implement that standard inf interface. Um, and I think we will see in the next two years, there's going to be some nice developments there. And Open Drive seems to become more user-friendly as well, <laughs> because it wasn't always in the beginning. Um, do they yeah. move away from XML as well? Or? <laughs> let's see Let's see about that. But I think there are some companies now describing languages that work on top of Open Drive, so you can more okay. dynamically. Sounds, sounds very German. Sure, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely the way we are doing things, right? But it was funny for me, you know, the other day I, I went on the website of an American simulator company and they put on the main website, we support Open Drive. And I thought to myself, wow, things are changing, <laughs> you know? So that's kind of funny. And um, on the on the model side and the AI side, is that then are you using like TensorFlow or other standards? Um, and and how do you actually like operate your models? How do you de deploy your models? How do, how does that work? Mm -hmm. I, it it sounds like um, I'm asking because it sounds as if there's like still a lot of groundwork to be done. Um, and in the AI space, it kind of always sounds as if like the groundwork is already done, but I'm not sure if it is the case. So <laughs> that's why I'm asking. Another, yeah, I love that question. Uh, again, I think on the AI side, we have seen great strides uh, been made on the supervised learning, right? Like whenever someone uh, learns about machine learning uh, and you do maybe the famous Coursera course, you will learn in the first lecture, there's three types of machine learning, supervised, unsupervised, and reinforcement learning. And then supervised learning That's the one that people read in the press about where you need gigantic data sets, ideally, and, you know, you can discern if uh, you can make some predictions, you can understand if something is a cat or not, like those typical examples. And a lot of tools have, um, have catered to that space. And I think that's really nicely covered. And I think we are now in a really nice phase where there's a lot of tools and we're kind of you know in in the let's let's look take an even further step back like in software engineering we've we have so many standard practices and best practices and then we have automation practices and testing and i think a few years back in machine learning we didn't have that yet 
And now we are getting there. So, you know, the, this kind of buzzword of ML ops, let's say, is slowly happening there. However, in our case, we are using reinforcement learning. So that's, you know, maybe you remember from the press when someone lost against uh, AlphaGo AI. That's kind of the type of ML we are using. It's less populated there, right? Because in our space, you need many more ingredients for it to work. So you need to have typically a simulator. And um, because the AI is learning or an agent is learning in real time in a simulator. And so, you know, just the effort that you need to set up, uh, the basic effort is much higher. Um, so I think uh, OpenAI has made something really great a few years back, providing this OpenAI gym standard. So a lot of people now, a lot of researchers are using that to build environments and to use their standard environments for benchmarking how their algorithms are working. But still, as you know, those are sometimes when you go there, those are 2D simulators, you still need to do a lot of work. So in our case, we had to build a 3D simulator that is consistent with reality because, of course, we, we care about uh, physical properties to be correct. And, you know, the pedestrian cannot go beyond like a certain speed, things like that. So you need that. Then... Um, like some other tools that we're using. I mean, we use PyTorch right now, but I think we usually go with whatever suits the needs best. So we are not, you know, extremely married to one particular tool. And then we have this whole topic of um, running training in the cloud when there's a simulator involved, which is, you know, because most of the tutorials or best practices that you read, it's like, okay, you have a Python script, you have a small data set somewhere, and then you do your thing. Um, in our cases, we have a whole simulator that trains in real time. Um, how do we get that on the cloud and how do we run tests? And, you know, it's a whole different ballpark. Um, so there have been some companies like Ray, uh, which I think they used to work and develop Spark back in the day. And then they are now focusing on reinforcement learning. And I find them very interesting as a company. So they are developing tools specifically for reinforcement learning because it's a different, you know, it's just a different type of machine learning, extremely different to the others. But apart from that, I think it's not yet as populated as the other areas of ML. So I'm looking forward to the upcoming years, what is going to change there. And you think there will be a lot of changes in, in terms of standards or? I think so, because... When we make it much easier for people to get set up to do reinforcement learning, I think this is going to unlock a lot of potential, unlock a lot of different business cases. And, you know, if we make it easier for people to do reinforcement learning, I'm sure, you know, we can solve many more interesting problems. So I think we had an interesting kind of inflection point. Um, and when you think about like the future world with um, machine learning and AI, um, <clears throat> are you sometimes also afraid of it? Or are you like purely positive on it? I'm not afraid in the sense of, you know, that I think like we have those movies where there's humanoid robots and things like that. I think I'm more afraid of some sometimes how companies use AI. Like I'm definitely, like I said, I love technology but I don't think we can do everything with it. So there's things like, you know, sometimes companies use machine learning or AI in recruiting. And I'm sometimes wondering, like, did you talk to recruiters before? Are you aware of all the problems and biases that we have? Because I think 
one of the big tech companies also used machine learning. And then it turned out uh, the data set that they trained on was incredibly biased. So it excluded like yeah. a big part of the population, right? So things like that, that, that scares me a little bit. Um, but I, I'm not scared in the sense of, you know, I think we're going to have a killer robot that's running after us. <laughs> Let me put it this way. Yeah, but I, I give you one example. Uh, I recently spoke to a, a guy who um, uh, told me a story about a conference he visited, an AI conference, like a few years ago, when someone from the police in America uh, attended and was rather like a junior developer person or junior AI person um, and said, yeah, I'm building this model to predict criminal behavior um, on behalf of, I don't know, CVs or something. Um, and I mean, that's incredibly dangerous, isn't it? I mean, it's not a killer Absolutely. robot, but <laughs> if uh, like uh, this tech in the wrong hands uh, can really lead to like a lot of wrong decisions, can it? Absolutely. And I mean, to be honest, it already is. I think especially, I mean, we usually he hear about the US. Um, I think the police is usually using AI much more than over here. Um, and, you know, it's incredibly biased. It's uh, discriminating against usually people of color and, you know, disadvantaged people. So that absolutely scares me. And I think we need to really, you know, include like social scientists or other types of people in the development process that think about these problems um, and make sure, you know, that there are some safety checks put into place. So I'm not the type of person that will say AI will substitute everyone. I mean, there's this nice example of I think it's in radiology where they use computer vision to predict or to to help doctors diagnose certain diseases. And I think that's a very nice use case because, you know, you still have the human expert there, but it's like an expert system to support someone else. And I do think that this expert human knowledge will be needed at least in the near future, right? I don't know what happens in the future, in the long-term future. But we should always whenever we judge, evaluate, and make decisions about people, we have to have some safeguards put into place, right? And uh, so, yeah, that absolutely scares me. <laughs> Still, we also have biases, right? So Correct. Yeah. <laughs> our brain is also full of biases. And that's um, <laughs> like if you, if you apply AI to predict something and then self-check uh, as a policeman, for example, and yeah, you, you still have those biases. So, yeah, yeah I think that's th what I don't, what I would not agree with is the statement, you know, that AI can eliminate human bias because it's still humans also programming the AI. And usually the data sets, if we talk about the type of AI that relies on a lot of data is uh, usually pretty biased from the example I have seen so far. Maybe in the future, you know, like I said, when we involve other people in other domains and they can, provide better data, maybe it will be a different thing. I don't know. But I have not been particularly impressed with what I have seen so far. Okay. There's always the outlier case, right? There's, there's always the unpredictable uh, case that you, uh, you, you didn't see. Um, so, yeah, thanks a lot for your insights. Um, coming to uh, the, the outro, um, do you have like a, a, a recent discovery be it in AI space or in your personal um, like um, nerd discovery uh, that um, 
you you go crazy about like a tool um something that makes you way more productive uh something that you've seen that that everyone should should know about Ooh, that's a that's an interesting one good good very good question i mean this is probably very uncreative but i really like to have uh like uh, bluetooth headsets and just walk around while i'm working <laughs> And at least for meetings, walking around, I mean, I know this is not, you know, something big, uh, but this is something I bought for myself this year. And I think that's made my life easier because working, you know, in tech, we sit a lot around. And then I think that that's kind of a nice thing. Um, I'm not sure how exciting it is, though, but for me personally, I quite like it. I, I Every once in a while, I think it's really exciting. Like whenever I lose my headphones at home, I sometimes go back to get them uh, in the morning. Like when I when I realize, okay, I lost them <laughs> or I forgot them, I go back to, to just fetch them because it makes me in a way more productive or more connected. Uh, it's a bit scary how wearables are like slowly entering closer to uh, our skin, right? <laughs> Let's see where it ends. <laughs> Let's see uh, where on it the ends. other hand side, I mean, this year we I lost a bag and then through my uh, headset, I could, you know, locate the bag. That was a kind of a nice thing. So I guess everything can be used in a positive and also in a negative way, like yeah, most things yeah. in life. That's true. Um, do you maybe have a, a tip or two for listeners who want to want to apply reinforcement learning or like want to start with AI, let's say, or get deeper in reinforcement learning? That's another great question. So there's um, a great set of lectures by David Silver um, on YouTube that are just freely available. And I think that's a great way to start. And then just playing around with OpenAI Gym, um, which is, you know, if you already know Python, then I think it's a very nice way to get started with it. So those two I would recommend. And then, um, yeah, I think those are the probably very good ways to get into it. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot. Um, let's now imagine um, I drive to Berlin with my... Um, borrowed Tesla from Elon Musk and it's a it's a beta version that he um was kind enough to give me uh, of the full self driving and also the uh, new feature called time machine um which he kind of envisions for years already um after going to Mars he's going to invent the time machine um and th that feature kind of works um and you step into my car and we um set the date August 2013 When you actually worked uh, for a, a Berlin-based company called IAM as an intern, <laughs> as an engineering intern, uh, and you now observe yourself, or we now observe yourself um, after we after that crazy ride, um, and you have the chance to whisper something into a young Maria's ears. Um, what, what would you whisper? Oh, I think, uh, you know, to not worry so much and that things will fall into place uh, I'm a perfectionist and I think maybe a lot of founders are. And then sometimes, you know, we get restless and think, oh my God, you know, I have to reach things faster. Um, and uh, also to learn to accept failure. Uh, this is, I think, a big theme in my life because in, especially in the startup and founder space and, you know, when you go on social media, everyone just talks about the things that work out right. And I think that can put a lot of pressure onto young people Um maybe sometimes unnecessarily. So I think I would whisper into the ear, you know, you're on the right track. 
if something doesn't work out, the next thing will and just do what uh, what what sparks joy, like Marie Kondo would say. <laughs> so. Okay, yeah, that's a good tip. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Maria. Uh, it was really nice talking to you. Uh, look forward to to hear the final cut of this episode um and uh, yeah hope to to meet you soon again um thanks a lot thank you also so much and like i said previously i feel incredibly honored to be part of of the series and uh yeah i wish you a very nice day i wish you a nice day too bye 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 Thank you for listening to the Arcelist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. AlphaList is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say on AlphaList, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.